From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. Lansing Community College Land Acknowledgement The Lansing Community College occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi peoples. In particular, the city of Lansing and LCC reside on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. In Part 2 of a three-part episode series, I started out by reading the Lansing Community College Land Acknowledgement Statement, as I did in the beginning of Part 1. And this three-part episode series of land stories explores the land of the indigenous peoples of Michigan, in particular southern Michigan, where the city of Lansing and therefore Lansing Community College uh, now sit, and the lands in the mid-Michigan region in general, that area of Michigan that we call mid-Michigan, Geographically, it is not exactly in the middle of Michigan, strictly speaking, but nonetheless, that is what that area is referred to now. And talking about the middle southern part of the Lower Peninsula. And the overarching goal of both Part 1, this, Part 2, and the forthcoming Part 3 of this episode series is to look at the background behind the reason why the Lansing Community College land acknowledgement statement uh, came into existence, a major communication document, and a major uh, thematic direction that Lansing Community College and other institutions around Michigan are embarking upon and, and started to somewhat recently in placing the context of land appropriation and where community colleges and universities sit in Michigan within a historical framework. And so I started out today by reading the Lansing Community College Land Acknowledgement Statement, just as I began the first part of this episode doing so. But to reiterate, the point of this episode is not just to examine the history of the Land Acknowledgement Statement, that the statement meaning the words that are contained in there and why those words were created and why they're read out or printed on at or on certain college events or documents has an interesting background behind it, and I will certainly cover that in part three of this episode. But using that Atlantic acknowledgement statement and its history behind it is really uh, suggestive of the broader goal to accomplish with this three-part series, and that is to look at the big picture of why was indigenous land appropriated, and what was the process behind that, trying to look at the background behind the people who lived on that land prior to appropriation, and then looking at the after effects of that land appropriation. It's a very broad sweeping topic, which is why I have devoted three episode portions to examine this. And for the loyal listeners to this program, you are uh, no doubt identifying a theme by now. And that is, many of the stories we tell on Land Stories 
are complex, and they are just a little bit too complex to be covered within the limits of a single 20 or 30 minute episode, and as such, with the glorious, wondrous technology at our hands, we can extend our conversation out, we can extend our exploration of these topics out. And the conversation aspect of this I don't want to lose sight of as well. Please feel free to contact me to get a hold of me through my contact details that are on the Land Stories section of the lccconnect.org homepage. And very much I look forward to engaging people in conversation related to uh, this very important topic and the other topics, the other stories we tell on Land Stories as well. So we move on then from where we left off on part one of this three-part series. And where we left off was shortly after the United States of America gained its independence from Britain. And that's a very important moment in the entire history of what would ultimately be the fate of the indigenous peoples, not only here in Michigan, but throughout the parts of North America. And the parts of North America that would become the United States of America and the parts of North America that would become part of Canada, and even uh, fairly briefly in the grand scheme of European colonial history, a part of Russia. And that very important transitional period, again, it's the, the late 1700s, the United States, to give a very quick and brief background to what the political and economic and geographic situation looked like at the time of American independence, both declared in 1776 and recognized, which is when the Treaty of Paris is ratified in 1783. The geographic situation at that time, with those uh, characteristics in mind, political, economic, geographic understanding, people geographic understanding, meaning where the people were living, it's an interesting picture when we focus on Michigan. And Michigan actually turns out to be one of the key linchpins, if you will, the deciding uh, geographic moment on the maps that were being drawn with the future of, or as the future of the indigenous peoples of the United States starts to be considered. And to some extent, Michigan has this important role to play, geographically speaking, in the fate of the Canadian nation, too. The Canadian part of this story is actually vital to the American part of this story, and there are two reasons for that. One, because of the way the boundaries were drawn up and the political circumstances behind the way those boundaries were drawn up. After the British surrendered to the United States and the French, the Battle of Yorktown in October of 1781, but also because of events that would happen over the roughly 30 years that followed uh, Lord Cornwallis's surrender to the American and French forces. That 30-year period of time, including the two years that passed between 1781 and the ratification of the Treaty of Paris in 1783, are very crucial in understanding, ultimately, how we get to the appropriation of indigenous lands and the reasons behind that and the aftermath behind that, that uh, ultimately is a historical narrative that not only spans the decades and the centuries, but it's a historical narrative that is still being written because the 
indigenous peoples, no matter how hard white Europeans and later Euro-Americans tried to remove and exterminate indigenous peoples, not only from the lands of southern Michigan, but all throughout the United States, that effort failed. And the indigenous cultures survived. They survived through a degree of attempt at destruction that unfortunately we see all around the uh, Americas and other parts of the world too from uh, as not only an aftermath but quite frankly the intent of many colonial endeavors and the word colonialism and the concept of colonialism has always had an interesting really paradoxical role uh, or, or I should say definition in American political thought, American political action, because the United States, of course, has always viewed itself as a nation that broke free of colonization. The British were our colonial overlords, as uh, American history tells us, and then we liberated ourselves from that oppressive colonial regime through the American War of Revolution, the Revolutionary War, the War of Independence. And then in the aftermath of that was a nation that emerges that sets itself up as a bulwark against European colonialism in the Americas. And in fact, an operating, very important operating doctrine that directed American foreign policy throughout much of the 19th century that would be the 1800s, known as the Monroe Doctrine, specifically was a declaration that the United States was going to be exactly that, a bulwark against European colonial influence in the Americas. But yet the paradox comes in with the United States viewing itself as an empire in the making when it comes to the North American continent. And that takes us back to a point I made a few moments ago in the intertwine of those futures of the United States and of Canada, and especially the critical three decades that followed the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown in October 1781 and the ratification of the Treaty of Paris in 1783, all the way through the first major land cession treaties I'm going to get into in a moment that begin in the 1790s, those land cession treaties made between the United States federal government and, as the Constitution labels them, the tribes, those treaties continue to proliferate through the 18-teens, the 1820s, especially spurred on by the events of the War of 1812, and then ultimately we get to the act of removal, the act of ethnic cleansing, the act of genocide against indigenous peoples throughout the entire eastern half of what is now the land of the United States of America. Now, as we're going to see towards the end of this episode, even though that sounds like a very strong, almost, uh, well, what's the word I'm looking for here? Ridiculous way of describing American behavior towards the indigenous peoples. I can't think of actually more accurate words to use. So let's get to that part of the story here. 
and look at those critical three decades. And this is where the borders come into the story. The United States declares its independence in 1776. The Revolutionary War concludes with the surrender of Lord Cornwallis to George Washington, uh, Gilbert du Martia, Marquis de Lafayette, and Comte de Rochambeau in October 19th of 1781. And that surrender, therefore, sets forth the process of negotiating a formal treaty that would be recognized in international law, the recognition, most importantly, of two things, the independence of the United States of America and who would be responsible for paying down the debt that the United States of America had incurred in fighting the war. So essentially, the treaty legitimized America's existence as an independent nation, and it legitimized American debt. Debt actually turns out to be a very important part of the story. And here's why. When the United States had its independence recognized, part and parcel of that recognition, as I just mentioned, was the legitimization of American debt, meaning before the United States was recognized internationally as a nation independent from Britain, it still had to borrow money to fight for its independence. And the money was borrowed through a fairly complex international system of finance that existed at the time, but the long and short of it is the U.S. was in debt, in debt to especially Dutch financiers, but others as well. And when the war ended, and as the United States formed a new government, the U.S. Constitution is ratified not that long after the Treaty of Paris uh, is ratified. So the Treaty of Paris comes into existence. Uh, it's ratified in 1783. The U.S. Constitutional Convention happens in 1787. And then that Constitution is ratified in 1789. And at that point, George Washington becomes president and Alexander Hamilton is selected as his Secretary of the Treasury. Now, the border issue in the treaty negotiations ultimately was settled with the borders as they are now between the United States and Canada for the most part, starting with the western end of Lake Superior and extending all the way to the modern-day Canadian border as it traverses across the northern uh, part of the United States. So the borders of Wisconsin, it's a very little maritime border, uh, in Lake Superior, right on through Michigan, uh, again, naming states that exist now. Many of these political entities weren't around yet at this time. And then all the way over through uh, the states of the eastern seaboard. So that border ultimately drew imaginary lines down the middle of the Great Lakes shorelines, starting from east to west of Ontario, then Erie, then Huron, and then up through the rapids of the St. Mary's and the St. Mary's River, and then into Lake Superior. Lands further west than there, that border ultimately was settled uh, after the War of 1812. Now, the border then was settled with the British, and the United States immediately embarks on a what ultimately was a completely different approach to looking at the lands of what we now call the Great Lakes and the Ohio Valley than what the British viewed that area of land to be. So the British 
after the French and Indian War, so we're going back in time a little bit to the 1750s, the French and Indian War was fought ostensibly over that uh, control, that area of land, the Great Lakes and Ohio Valley, but it was fought primarily between the British and their indigenous allies and the French and their indigenous allies. The French relied on their indigenous allies to a greater extent because they were vastly outnumbered by British forces. When that war came to an end, the British had to face a massive uprising, a rebellion, a war that was set forth by Pontiac, the indigenous leader from Michigan, as an effort to attack and ultimately siege, lay siege to British forts by the dozen all around the Great Lakes and Ohio Valley area. And that attack by Pontiac, Pontiac's uprising, sometimes called Pontiac's War or Pontiac's Rebellion, continues throughout the summer of 1763. Ultimately, the British are able to remove Pontiac and his allied forces from many forts they had captured during that uprising, including the British fort recently acquired from the French at the Straits of Mackinac. That would be the fort that we now call Fort Michel of Mackinac. It's a fascinating historical site to visit, and if you have never had a chance to do it, by golly, I encourage you to go there. It is a historically authentic recreation of the French fort that was built throughout the 1700s, and then the recreation and the historical display at Michelin Mackinac also includes the additions to the fort, the changes to the fort that the British made. Pontiac's uprising and the siege of Fort Michelin Mackinac has a, a very large role to play in all of this. And the reason for that is the British, after making peace with the indigenous peoples, are only able to keep that peace by passing the Royal Proclamation of 1763, as it was called. And this proclamation was a set-aside, a very large set-aside, ultimately, of land that included all the Ohio Valley and Great Lakes region, as well as down into what would ultimately become the heart of the American South, Mississippi, Alabama, much of the modern-day state of Georgia, uh, Florida, etc., that the British had to guarantee that they would severely limit, severely restrict settlement onto those lands from white British colonists further east. Now, the aftermath of this proclamation, and thereby the aftermath of Pontiac's War, really has, is, is twofold in terms of the really big uh, things that impacted the history of indigenous lands. Number one, this is the first time that Europeans, and, and we could group them with Euro-Americans for the purpose of this consideration here, seriously contemplate the idea of some type of a separation between quote-unquote settlers, that would be Europeans who were used to farming land, and building things on it. Think back to the end of the last episode when we gave a consideration of European concepts of land usage and who had the right to be on it and who didn't and how that compared to indigenous thoughts upon uh, similar matters. And then also it set forth the idea that going forward, indigenous peoples 
had to be negotiated with. They couldn't simply be conquered. That is every bit as important as the idea of having a separation of lands that indigenous people shall occupy and lands that Euro-Americans shall occupy. And when the United States comes into existence, these concepts, separation and negotiation, they form the basis of how the United States looked at its quote-unquote Indian policy. I think a more accurate term uh, to describe what was going on back then would be how the United States looked at its negotiations and its relations with its indigenous peoples. So that gets us into this critical three-decade period from the conclusion of the American Revolutionary War up to the War of 1812. And what happens during those 30 years is, is that American settlers set their eyes on the lands of the Great Lakes and Ohio Valley areas. And the United States government, unlike what the British government had done with the Proclamation of 1763, not only makes no effort to, or very little effort, to restrict settlement onto much of that land, but it encourages it. And it does so going back to settle the debt. That's right, the same debt that I mentioned mere moments ago, that would be the debt the United States incurred in fighting the Revolutionary War. Congress passed two laws in the 1780s. They were actually passed before the Constitution was ratified under the uh, original uh, governing charter of the United States. That would be the Articles of Confederation. And those laws created a very complex and ultimately long-term process by which the lands of the Great Lakes region would be settled and the lands would be sold. And the process of settling the land and selling the land would ultimately lead to political organization, thereby the United States expanding its continental empire westward. And the reason why the United States had the opportunity or the reason to put together such policies is because of the boundaries that ended the Revolutionary War through the Treaty of Paris included an area of land that greatly exceeded that by which was most densely populated and constituted what we now oftentimes refer to as the original 13 states, formerly colonies. In 1796, the United States negotiates its first land session treaty. And this ceded, meaning handed over to the United States federal government, much of what is now the modern state of Ohio. And land session treaties, it was understood at the time, were required as a part of this long-term process of getting hold of opening for settlement, all of this land of the Great Lakes region and the Ohio Valley region. And the reason for that is because the United States Constitution has a clause in it that stipulates the indigenous tribes, referred to in the Constitution as the several tribes, are to be negotiated with as Congress would negotiate and ultimately ratify or vote down treaties with other nations. Therefore, 
From a legal perspective, the United States government embarked upon a treaty-making process with the indigenous tribes in order to acquire their land. And that starts in 1796, and it continues on throughout much of the rest of the century that would follow, actually, the 1800s. And that is ultimately where we will arrive at the point of Indian removals, as they were called at the time. And I will reiterate a point I made a few moments ago. It has oftentimes been remarked upon by various scholars and commentators and other people that look at this period of American history that the United States, in forcing indigenous peoples like the Potawatomi off their land, in organizing massive removals of entire ethnicities of people, such as the Potawatomi removal, such as what was done with the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Cree, the Seminole, and what has become known to history as the Trail of Tears, constitutes ethnic cleansing, or it constitutes genocide. The distinguishing factor between one term or the other seems to be the intent of those seeking to somehow remove either by moving the people to another geographic location, that would be ethnic cleansing, or outright extermination of people through mass murder, that would be genocide. And at the same time, there are others who look at the Indian removals in the United States, such as the Potawatomi, as something that shouldn't be looked at as genocide or ethnic cleansing. And the evidence, if you will, given for those who favor that definitely less uh, severe terminology usage tends to be that the government, they argue, that set forth the removals was more interested in moving people off their land than it was killing them. And second of all, if ethnic cleansing or genocide, the argument goes, are intended to be ways of forever removing all aspects of uh, individuals off of one area of land so that it could be populated by another group or another culture, then what the United States government did fell short of that goal because indigenous peoples survive. In my mind, this is an exercise in uh, arguing over words, and, and in doing so, we lose track of what actually happened and why it's important to know what happened. And as important as it is to ensure the terminology is adequate to the description of the event being portrayed, nonetheless, the important fact of the matter is looking at, in our case here, for this story, what happened to the Potawatomi, the other indigenous peoples of Michigan, but in particular those that lived in the lands that Lansing Community College now sits on as the focus of this episode. We shall do that and leave that uh, discussion over terminology with the following in mind. Describing how something happened is very important in understanding what happened. However, no matter what words one uses to either try to suppress 
the transmission of knowledge going forward or try to obfuscate what actually happened will never render the acquisition of such knowledge to be an impossible goal to achieve so long as there are people out there who seek to find that information, who understand its importance and relevancy, and share what they have found with others. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.